You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. So when I was growing up, um, I saw Christianity as a list of commands, of do's and don'ts. And maybe this is your story too. I lived in a, in a Christian bubble. I, my parents taught me the Bible. I, I attended a Christian school for 14 years. I, mean, I was at church at least twice a week. My sense of worth was based on conformity to Christian practice. I received approval for obedience and I felt shame and guilt whenever I stepped out of line. Now, if you grew up like me or or you currently view Christianity like this, our passage today probably won't help to change that perspective. We're about to read our passage soon, and I count 20 commands in 17 verses. That's a lot of, of rules, if you will, to follow. And today we finish off this sermon series in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. I've I've titled this series, Be Ready and Be Holy. We are to be ready for Christ's return by being holy, morally pure and devoted to God. But is this the best way to live? Following someone else's rules, commands for the rest of your life. I hope this morning to inspire you to pursue your eternal joy by living in the way God desires. I want you to see in the Bible, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, that the pursuit of holiness is the pursuit of your happiness. I want to encourage you to joyfully obey God with the power he provides. So with that in mind, let's read our passage together. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll begin at verse 12. And the words will be projected behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the inerrant and authoritative holy word of God. What we're going to see in our passage today is holiness is all about grace. Horizontal grace, vertical grace, and empowering grace. So we'll start by looking at horizontal grace, extending horizontal grace to others. So what have we seen so far in Paul's letter? We've seen that the Thessalonians are a model church to other churches in the area because of their faith, hope, and their love. Paul has reminded them of his tender parental care for his young and persecuted church. He has urged them to continue in the Christian faith with the strength that God provides. And they are to fight sexual immorality, display brotherly love, and have their hope set on the second coming of Christ in their pursuit of holiness. All this so that they will be ready for the coming of Christ by being holy. And now, as you see, we've come to the end of this letter. Paul wants to exhort them with a few key final instructions. So look with me again at verse 12. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Paul here, he's not giving apostolic approval to three different categories of people, but rather one category. All three actions describe what a pastor of a church does. The pastor works hard as an under-shepherd to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. He joyfully prepares and, and delivers spiritual food for the flock. He governs the church with authority derived from the Lord. He corrects in love when the sheep stray from the straight and narrow path. The pastor persistently toils in every season to present his church mature in Christ. Now, Paul not only wants the pastors of the church to be recognized and respected, but he desires for them to be loved. So look with me at verse 13. He says, we ask you to, to respect them, and then verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The church is to see its pastors to the utmost degree through the lens of love. But again, not by virtue of, of their status or their social rank. That, that was the way of, of Greco-Roman culture. No, the foundation for receiving respect and love was their hard labor among the congregation. Sacrificial, Christ-like service defines Christian leadership. Now, even with the perfect pastor, if there ever was one, you can imagine how there could still be, be tension or feelings of bitterness from the congregation. You know, wh why did he have to call out my sin like that? 
You know, it, it wasn't very gentle. He didn't speak the truth in love. You know, I, I don't quite agree with his decision for our church. Or, or, or when's the last time the pastor came knocking on my door? Paul anticipates this, and he gives a, a brief command at the end of verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. Remember, this, this young church was facing persecution from their own countrymen. So Paul knows that community loyalty and unity would be the best defense against attacks from the outside. But even more so, striving for peace together would be a powerful witness to the gospel. It's saying that we, one redeemed body, have peace with the one God through the only Savior, Jesus Christ. We, as one body, trust in God's sovereignty and goodness to guide us through his appointed leaders. Now I can speak for, for the leadership team of, of our church. We feel loved and respected by, by you. Thank you for trusting us, especially in these last 19 months. Thank you for, for seeking our guidance and accepting our counsel. Thank you for praying for us and encouraging us. And I've told this story multiple times. The first service that Joanne and I attended here, Pastor Josh started the service by saying, I'm Josh, I'm the senior pastor here, and I love pastoring this church. This is back when we were about 70 or 80 people. And in the two years that I've been here, I've grown to share his sentiment. And it is a joy, it is a great joy and privilege to labor among you. Now, Paul moves from addressing conduct toward the pastors specifically to the entire congregation in verse 14. So look with me there. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Notice that these commands are directed toward everyone in the church. Paul calls them all to take responsibility for their brothers and sisters' spiritual well-being. It's not just left up to the pastors. Paul tells them that everyone is to strongly warn those who are idle or disorderly. The, these are the sub, insubordinate ones, those who insist on going on their own way. Christian brotherhood does not turn a blind eye to the faults of others. It shows concern, deep concern for their spiritual while being urging them, pleading with them to conform their lives back to the gospel. It says, brother, sister, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Fight sin or you will not go to heaven. Church, who is God inviting you to lovingly admonish? Now, to those who are faint-hearted, admonishment is not the gospel remedy. Paul tells us that encouragement is. 
those who think they are all alone in a dangerous world, they, they don't need another reminder of how they have fallen short. Church, come alongside these people. Remind them of God's presence and his providence. Comfort them with this truth. Brother, sister, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And church, help the weak, the abused and abandoned, saints with weaker consciences, the elderly, those in chronic pain. Pay attention to them and remain loyal to them in the long term. Society has, has walked over them and, and put them down. And the church's job is to lift them up and give them support. Say to these people, say to the weak, brother, sister, we will joyfully bear your burdens with you. To tie it all together, Paul exhorts the church to display the Spirit's fruit of patience to all types of people. We are to mirror the long-suffering character of God. This is what the psalmist says about our God. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, this holds true even when the Christian is sinned against or wronged. Look with me at verse 15. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Notice the the comprehensiveness of this statement. It applies in, in all situations, both inside and outside the church. It applies when someone takes advantage of your generosity, when someone is, is resistant to your admonition, to your love and your care, when you're belittled at work or by your spouse or by your friends and family. Our, our human desire for vengeance can be so strong. It, it's hard to, to turn the other cheek as Jesus calls us to. But Jesus calls his disciples to this type of holy living. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Church, aggressively pursue what is best for the offending party. This is the way of holiness. And is this not how God has treated us. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But now he has reconciled us to Christ by his death on the cross in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God repaid rebellion with reconciliation. Evildoers receive the supreme goodness of God in Christ. All this so he can make us holy. We who have been shown abundant grace are to exhibit this same grace to others. Horizontal grace. 
And with that, Paul then turns to how grace is to be experienced with God, vertical grace. So look with me at verse 16 to 18. Paul gives another three quick commands. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And then he gives the reason, the motivation. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But isn't this hard to do? Is it just pure grit and sheer willpower? Can we possibly find joy in every circumstance? Does every situation merit gratitude to God? Our world seems too broken for that, doesn't it? But in a world of hopelessness and pessimism, joy, prayer, and thankfulness ought to characterize a Christian. Joy rooted in the gospel. Joy in being one with Christ and being one with Christ. Joy produced by the Holy Spirit. Prayer as the means of expressing consistent dependence in a faithful God like we just sang about. Not not a quid pro quo mindset. I do this for you and you do this for me. But an attitude of confidence that the Father loves his children that the Father is eager to give good gifts, give himself if they but ask by faith. Thankfulness to God for his undeserved mercies. Lack of thankfulness is a sign of, of, of depravity as we see in Romans 1. Paul tells us that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Believers are to find every reason to praise and thank God in whatever situation at all times. This is the desire, the will of God. As we saw in chapter 4, God's will is also our sanctification, namely that we abstain from sexual immorality. Joy, prayer, and thanksgiving are on par with living a morally holy life. Now, aren't these just more commands for us to perform and fail at? Is the motivation for obedience rooted in fear of punishment? I want you to think about this in a different light. God's will, what he desires, is his gracious gift to his children. Believers are blessed by being drawn into doing his will in Christ. The Father wants our joy. He wants our faith. He wants our gratitude. He wants our enjoyment of life to be in him alone. It is God's joy to be gracious to us, and our joy flows from delighting in his gracious will. His will, his desire is to anchor us to the source of all goodness. He says, find your joy in me. All you need in this life is me. Recognize that I am in every situation that I lead you in. I am better, more glorious than any fleeting sexual pleasure. 
If you're still seeking for God's will for your life, there it is, right in the Bible. God's will for you is to find eternal joy in communion with him. My beloved church, delight yourself in the Lord. Paul continues in our, in our next verses, exhorting the church to be receptive to another means of God's grace. Look with me at verse 19 and 20. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. This past week, Joanne and I were at a, were at a cottage with some friends for a couple days. And our only source of heat was, was an old fireplace, a, a black box in the middle of the room with, with, with a door. And when the fire was going with a, <clears throat> with a good supply of wood, we had to keep the door slightly open to allow oxygen to continue feeding the flames. And once we closed the door, we saw that the fire would slowly die down. Paul here is warning the church not to cut off manifestations of the Spirit's life-giving, empowering presence. They were for the good of the community and were not to be eliminated. Specifically, Paul instructs them not to despise prophecies, to to treat them with contempt or to, to see no use for them, to extinguish the voice of prophecy by refusing to speak. Now, the main purpose of of Christian prophecy is is not to predict or divine the future, but it is to build up the church. We see this clearly in 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 5 says, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And later in verse 12, Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Eagerness as opposed to despising. Whether because of fear or desire for control or flawed theology, the response was not to discount prophecy. Now, this is, a, this is a sin I've had to repent of in the last couple years. For the majority of my Christian life, my understanding of the Spirit and His work was deeply flawed. The Spirit was an unexplainable force, not a person. He could only do what I could reason out with my intellect from Scripture. And in my pride, I put God in a box in the name of orderly worship. And I'm so thankful that God has brought me to this church to confront my pride and my unbelief. I'm grateful that he's used many of you to winsomely and lovingly elevate my view of the Spirit and his work. In the way you talk, in in your prayers, you've displayed a consistent expectancy for the Spirit to do his mighty work of magnifying Christ and building up the church. So I thank you for your example. Instead of despising prophecy like I did, Paul calls 
for biblically informed discernment. Look with me at verse 21 and 22. He says, test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, we should be aware of taking these verses out of context. Paul is encouraging the careful evaluation, the weighing of all prophecy. This, this discernment, this sifting of the wheat from the tares means holding on to what is good and discarding what is evil. So my beloved church, joyfully expect, yearn for the Spirit to build us up through prophecy. When he pleases to do so, respond not in fear, but in faith, exercising our God-given discernment. Paul's desire is for the church to embrace this ongoing work of the Spirit while also being on guard against false revelations. The church is to delight in the Spirit's continual grace in building up the church. They were to delight in God's grace by rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. Savoring vertical grace and extending horizontal grace. And what we'll see as we finish our book is that God himself empowers his people to do just that. Look with me again at the, at the wonderful blessing of verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul skillfully weaves into this benediction two main themes that we've already seen throughout the book. Holy living and the return of Christ. Holiness is to touch every aspect of our lives. That's what Paul means by by spirit, soul, and body. Believers are to conform themselves to the will of God. But they are not left on their own to reach that goal on the final day, to be completely sanctified, to be blameless. God himself provides the power by his spirit to do this. The God of peace, he did did not leave sinners in a state of being enemies with him. Those who were rebelling against him, who were dead in their sin. Those who deserve to suffer in hell under his just wrath. He took divine initiative, calling his own people before he created them to be holy and blameless. He sent Christ to die on the cross in their place for their sins. He grants new life by his spirit. He gives faith and repentance to turn from their misguided pleasures and turn to Christ for their eternal joy and salvation. His empowering spirit transforms these saints day by day to be more like Christ, to increase in holiness, to delight in the will of God. And when Jesus returns for his blood-bought people, they will be completely sanctified. 
kept blameless before the presence of his glory, forever enthralled by Christ and delighting in his immeasurable glory. If you're not a Christian, this is what God brought you here to listen to today. Not a self-help talk to boost your sense of worth. If you've been listening, it's been quite the opposite. Not a philosophical discussion. No, you are hearing the life-saving, pleasure-transforming message of the gospel that demands a response. You are still dead in your sin. But we pray God gives you spiritual life by his grace. You delight to please yourself, but we pray that God gives you faith to respond, to repent and turn to him for your eternal joy. And if you are saved by grace alone, like me, you have the wonderful promise in verse 24. He who called us is faithful. He will surely do it. Our God guarantees by the truthfulness of his character that he will preserve his chosen people until the return of Christ. Brothers and sisters, comfort each other with this truth often. When we doubt our salvation, when we struggle with sin day by day, comfort each other with this precious truth of God's preservation of his holy ones. As Paul closes his letter to his dear church, his theme is unity. He first asks for prayer in verse 25. He says, simply, brothers, pray for us. His own prayers serve as a model that they were to imitate. But even more so, his humble posture serves as an example to them. Listen to what E.W. Saunders um, says about um, Paul's example of prayer. He says, the church at prayer is a church where pastor and people are praying for others, where pastors pray for their people, and where people are praying for their pastors who, like them, are standing in the need of prayer. Mutual intercessory prayer is the delight and privilege of the church. As he reminds them of their unity with him, he also exhorts them to display unity with each other. Look at verse 26. He says, greet all the brothers and, and sisters with a holy kiss. Now before you all take off your masks and turn to the person beside you, let's be clear on what this means for today. The kiss would have been a common greeting in Greco-Roman culture. In the early Christian community, the kiss was made holy, serving as a display of unity between Christians across different social classes. For us today, it is an exhortation to demonstrate our spiritual, familial affections in an appropriate way. Every Sunday, I see Thomas Penner. He gives me a big hug and lifts me off the floor. 
And when I was in seminary, we would greet each other with a firm handshake and call each other brother. These are just some of the ways to greet each other with holy unity in mind. Even having this letter read aloud to the Thessalonians displayed unity. Look at verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The illiterate, slaves, even the idle and disorderly would sit together under the encouragement and instruction as this letter was read aloud. And Paul ends his letter with a reminder of what we all need most. The grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The letter began with a desire for grace and peace and ends with the God of peace and the grace of Christ. The person of Jesus is the fountain, the source of God's grace. So my beloved church, let's together pursue our eternal joy in Christ with the strength God provides. Let's be distinct from the world by rooting our satisfaction, our treasure in the unchanging one. Let's joyfully be ready together for the coming of Christ by living a life of holiness by his grace for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your spirit you help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us wisdom to apply grace to one another who are in different situations, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. God, you have been so patient and steadfast in your love for us, and we pray that you would give us grace to do the same for one another. Help us by your spirit to be the kingdom of priests and holy nation that you call us to be. Allow us to be an example to the nations of what it means to live holy lives before a holy God. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.